Welcome to the Future Self podcast. My name is Jonathan Zalakos, and I'm in my last year of a design and business administration double degree at the Australian National University. I'm majoring in jewelry and object, and I'm very excited to be talking to Ezra Satok Wallman, a very accomplished jewelry artist whose work has been exhibited around the world. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Mm, glad to hear it. Um, where, where are you right now? Are you in lockdown? How's the, the city vibe? Um, I'm in Toronto, Canada, and uh, while the, the city has uh, opened up again, my wife and I are still maintaining our uh, semi-lockdown situation. I mean, we go out for the, the basics, the bare essentials, and, and that's it at this point. Yeah, excellent. It's the same deal here. Um, masks outside is nice, but it's sort of flowing again, for better or for worse. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Mm, that's the way. That's the way. Well, could you introduce yourself and what you do? Um, okay, so my name is uh, Ezra Setoff Woolman. I'm a, a jewelry artist. I work exclusively in, uh, in jewelry. Um, uh, I've been working in this field for about 20 years. And uh, I've had the, um, the good fortune of having studied in uh, a few different countries, uh, Canada, the US, uh, Italy. I uh, set up my own studio um, just outside of Toronto uh, in uh, 2009. Mm. And uh, I've been working as um, an independent, uh, an artist um, <clears throat> since then. So. Um, while I do work exclusively in uh, jewelry, I uh, don't necessarily make what you would consider traditional jewelry. Um, I like to look at uh, the stuff that I produce as small sculpture, uh, mm. or um, uh, recently I've sort of delved into uh, a little bit of a micro-engineering project. Um, but for the most part, uh, everything that comes out of my studio is wearable. Um, call it what you like, uh, but it is to adorn the body. And, yeah. um, and uh, yeah, I, I absolutely love what I do. Excellent. That's so great to hear. Uh, could you expand a little bit on what you do, what the day-to-day -day, uh, life of a jewelry artist looks like? Um, well, um, I'm uh, a bit of a perfectionist, so I'm work obsessed. Uh, I tend to have to make myself put things down and take breaks. Uh, once I get going on a project, I'm uh, pretty full steam. So, um, I uh, start my day walking my dog with my wife, um, who I, as I, uh, I think I mentioned in the pre-interview, we work together. Uh, mm. so the two of us share the studio. Um, we have some breakfast, we get going uh, to work. And uh, generally speaking, um, it's a day, uh, depending on what the project is, full of you know hands-on activity. We, um, I don't do any casting. Uh, I fabricate everything. Uh, yeah. Uh, essentially working from alloying uh, of metals to uh, the finished product. Uh, everything takes place in my studio, uh, whether there are stones to be set or um, forging, smithing, you name it. If, it, if it's a, a hands-on process, we do it. And um, uh, so, so essentially, yeah, that's uh, the day is, is spent in the workshop. Uh, mm. I don't uh, haven't had much of a social life over the last 10 years. As, as I'm sure you know, it, uh, it takes a long time to, um, yeah. to produce something that you're satisfied with. And um, I still am in a relatively early stage of my career. So 
the last decade have been focused on um, developing a body of work that that is large enough that I can uh, work with more than one gallery and, um, and, and, it, and it takes time to get to that point. That seems to what it really boils down to in developing a, a career in the field is spending a lot of time getting the ball rolling and, and building the ball big enough to make it worth rolling. For sure. I, I think, you know, there are people who, who manage to uh, make it work um, and, and juggle something else uh, in addition to their jewelry practice or, or craft or arts practice. Um, but, uh, I, I'm full time and, um, yeah, I think, uh, <clears throat> it's, I, I'm sure contributed to what, you know, whatever success I've had has been because I've, I've worked my butt off and I've been determined to, um, you know, get my work out there. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm curious about your um, shared space with your wife. Do you have a, a collaborative process or is it sort of distinct um, to each maker? So there are definitely projects where, uh, where I require extra hands. Um, mm. There was a, my wife and I studied together um, as we were, um, you know, trying to figure out what we wanted to do. So we went to school together in North America and then as well mm. in Italy. Um, but our paths uh, diverged at a certain point and, um, she started to focus more on silversmithing, uh, and yeah, larger yeah. objects. And, and I, um, I stayed working with jewelry and, and basically smaller, creating smaller objects. So, mm. um, in our studio previously, because we haven't finished setting the new one up yet, uh, she's had the section of the studio with all of the big hammers and anvils and stakes. Yeah. And I've got my little tiny hammers and uh, little miniature stakes over mm. in my side of the studio. So mm. we do definitely work together on certain things. Um, and there are often times uh, where she's um, collaborated with me on some of my pieces uh, where, for example, um, I use a lot of silk braided cords for the necklaces or pendants that I make. Uh, yeah. My wife, uh, Jennifer, does all of the kumihimo braiding um, of those. Um, mm. Uh, and so there's there's always you know somewhere that uh, that she fits into the the puzzle. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk about more of the sort of international connections and education experiences that you've had. But um, just going back to square one, uh, what was your introduction to jewelry, and how did you decide to pursue jewelry as a career? What was that journey? It was sort of by chance. Um, I've always been interested in uh, in the arts and um, and being involved in in making and craft. I was actually working um, with glass for a while. Uh, my wife and I had applied to summer program at a school in uh, in the United States called Haystack School of Arts in uh, Deer Isle, Maine. Um, the glass program historically is always booked up. And, uh, and the school recommends that uh, you choose a second choice uh, when you're applying. So my wife had, had actually been already making jewelry uh, when she was in university. And um, that was what she had decided she wanted to do at Haystack. So naturally it was my second choice and that's where I ended up that summer. And uh, I never looked back. I, I fell in love with uh, working with metal immediately. I'm pretty sure I very quickly got rid of any glass blowing equipment and uh, we started buying more jewelry making equipment. And um, 
it uh, it didn't take very long before we decided we'd both go back to school in a jewelry centric program at a college in Vancouver. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that was uh, at this point, I guess that was uh, uh, 19 years ago. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting to hear that you started with glass because I feel like so much of glass making processes are quite rapid and compared to metalsmithing, which unless you're casting always feels really labored and quite slow. Um, I'm curious about how you made that jump or, or what struck out to you from metalsmithing. You know, it wasn't a difficult jump to make because um, I, I felt, and not that I, I did very much um, studying with glass. Uh, I, I worked with a couple of people, you know, as a sort of quasi apprentice mm. um, in their studios and picked up a few things, but it was something that I always felt very limited by. Um, in terms of what you could do with it. And I guess there just wasn't a, a match between what I was trying to express and what the material was allowing me to do. Mm. So um, it also didn't help that I have a, a horrible, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a phobia, but broken glass is something that just drives me absolutely crazy. Oh, yeah. So it wasn't going to be a good fit for me. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> metal... Uh, it it, uh, it just seemed like something that I could connect with more easily. And, um, you know, working with metal, making jewelry, um, there are so many layers to the process. It just, it for me, seems like something I can get more involved in into. Um, whereas uh, glass, I, I felt like I was always sort of, you know, dancing around the restrictions and the limitations. Right. A bit too much character in the process and in the material itself. Perhaps, yeah. So yeah, so the transition was pretty easy, and uh, and I didn't really think twice about it, and um, mm. and we both were accepted into a program that uh, we enjoyed thoroughly, and uh, and it was after after we finished uh, school in Vancouver that we decided we needed to take it a step further and continue our studies, and we moved to Florence, uh, oh, where really? our goal was to um, learn specifically techniques that were, um, you know, classical goldsmithing techniques that were becoming harder and harder to, to find places that you could learn them from. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I started, sorry, so go, go ahead. I was going to say, that's like a really big milestone in your career, moving to Italy and, and trying to chase down that traditional craft practice, which is, is harder and harder to find. I'm curious about how you found that opportunity and how you took advantage of that? Um, well, it was, it was difficult. And, uh, you know, it was um, early 2000s, uh, finding information about um, schools in Europe was uh, not something that there was a, a lot of on the internet at the time. Mm. Um, while some schools did have websites set up, uh, they were few and far mm. between. And, um, we honed in on a couple schools, uh, Le Artiorefe and Alchemia, and um, we decided uh, that we'd actually travel to Florence and go and, and visit the schools. And mm. um, we decided that it was something that we wanted to pursue. And it took about a year to prepare and study Italian uh, at the University mm. of British Columbia. And uh, it was uh, a long process, but in the end, we, we made it over there. Uh, it was uh, uh, very uh, exciting. I mean, and we, yeah. you know, we were 
we were at a, at a we well we we decided to go to lay RFA and uh, we were at a school with people who had come from you know uh, a dozen other countries if not more mm. all of us had learned some level of Italian and that became the common language and it was an amazing experience mm. um, but uh, but but we felt that that's what it was going to take in order to learn proper Florentine engraving or um, traditional uh, stone setting techniques yeah. that um, you really you were you were having a hard time at that time finding uh, programs that were were still um, able to teach these things in a in a in a classical and proper way. Hmm. Uh, so I did a stone setting program. My wife Jennifer did uh, an engraving program in addition to the goldsmithing program uh, that was the sort of general um, uh, diploma program at the school, hmm. and um, and yeah, it was fantastic. Um, it was there that we met Giovanni Corvaia, who uh, who is somebody that we were aware of and and had uh, already studied and admired his work. Mm. Uh, and he was at the time um, a visiting teacher that would come visit uh, for one week out of every month and work with our class on a project that we had uh, that we would work exclusively with him during that week on. Right. And uh, we developed a relationship with him that led to us uh, joining him for another three years at his uh, studio in Umbria, mm. uh, where we worked um, and, uh, and continued to develop uh, our, our techniques and skills and, uh, and find our direction as, as jewelry makers. Yeah, that sounds like such an exciting opportunity all the way through. A lot of fun and a lot of joy, it seems like. It was a hell of an adventure, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. And how did you have the confidence to, to you know, take the steps to live out this adventure? Um, were you working a lot beforehand or had some savings ready to go? What was the... Yeah, I, ha I was working all through school while we were in Vancouver and um, in saving. Uh, I was lucky enough to have uh, some support from my parents who who helped us um, mm. with, uh, you know, the big move over there. Uh, it was it was challenging. Uh, there were there were definitely a lot of uh, nights where uh, while well, we were still wrapping up our, our studies and and um, and life in Vancouver, where I can remember having cans of beans for dinner and uh, very basic menu uh, selection, uh, mm. but we, we made it work, and uh, and we were lucky enough to have some parental support that that made it possible. Yeah, it always helps. Okay, and and over the span of your career, what are some more sort of milestones that sort of define the direction that you're heading in over time? Well, I think um, the, the the whole Italy experience really opened my eyes to um, to what was at the time uh, a fast-growing international community of, of jewelry makers, people who were focused on um, this new idea of contemporary jewelry. And um, having made it already to Italy and figured out how to speak another language and uh, start to um, develop connections there, I put a lot of time um, once we came back to Canada in continuing to develop those international connections. And, um, and it was something that has really, I feel, benefited my career in a big way because uh, it's opened the door for me in numerous countries where I've had the opportunity to 
um, participate in, in incredible events, whether it's been exhibiting my work or presenting as a lecturer or, um, or even um, I've had the opportunity a couple of times to even help curate a couple of things. So um, having developed this network of people that I know uh, throughout our field um, and around the world, um, it's really, it's given me a lot of amazing opportunities. You know, stepping out of my bubble and, uh, and leaving my comfort zone was, uh, was one of the best experiences and, and challenges I could have, um, you know, presented myself with. Yeah, yeah, it's very exciting, very stimulating. Um, and so it sounds like you it drew a lot from the network and the people that you were sort of around um, as you were traveling. Um, did you have like specific mentors and advocates that really propelled you in your practice? Um, well, yes. Um, you know, as I mentioned, um, Giovanni Corvaia has probably been the, um, the person who I, I credit most with mentoring me as, as a goldsmith. Uh, at the same time, I had a wonderful uh, teacher when I was in Vancouver named Darius Babel, um, who sadly passed away a few years ago. But he was um, he was the the person who really exposed me initially to um, to what was going on in Europe historically with jewelry and 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 what continued to be going on in Europe um, at when I was a student. And and he he definitely helped guide me towards uh, understanding that the college program that I was in at the time wasn't, you know, it didn't have to be the last stop. And, mm. um, and, and he really encouraged me to pursue more. Uh, and, uh, and it was something I always appreciated very much because he, he clearly took an interest in me as a student and um, was uh, a big influence. So, yeah. You know, also, you know, my father, my father um, was a struggling artist uh, while I was growing up and um, and my grandfather as well was a uh, was a painter and um, mm. uh, actually was uh, somewhat well known here in, in North America uh, back in the um, in the 70s. Right. Uh, so, so I've looked, you know, to both their successes and failures and, um, and, and they've definitely influenced me to, to follow my, my desire to, to be a creative. Mm. Um, um, and you know, in terms of, uh, specific influences, jewelry wise, um, yeah, I've, I mean, I've, I've really met, uh, so many, um, amazing people who, uh, beyond just their work itself that they as people have inspired me uh there's a um an amazing uh jewelry artist in japan named kewa kobayashi uh who i had uh the good fortune of meeting when i was in japan a couple years ago and um we sat down for a day and uh, basically geeked out and showed each other our our work and talked about technique and shared ideas with each other and it's experiences like that 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 have really been, um, you know, fuel for me to to continue to drive me to, uh, you know, go out there and and continue to try to be a part of this um, this global community, which it's it's an amazing thing. There uh, there are amazing amazing talented artists out there and we have the um the luxury of being able to be connected this way uh through whether it's through social media or physical experiences or 
interviews or listening to podcasts, whatever it may be. Um, you know, we're not all just working, tinkering away in our own little pockets uh, anymore. Yeah, yeah. But with that said, there's still a large element of, of personal drive and, and, you know, the initiative to pursue so many opportunities. Um, with your involvement in like SNAG, the Society of North American Goldsmiths, and your lecturing and um, these sort of opportunities, are they a lot of the time sort of by application on your own initiative or do you have like an in or...? Um, well, uh, the SNAG, my relationship with them started um, in 2013. I, I had been a member, but I was approached by um, Brigitte Martin to join a committee. Mm. Uh, at the time, it was a committee that was specifically focused on creating content for the annual SNAG conference and, um, and specifically for what they were calling at the time the professional development seminar. Um, so I was asked to join this committee and, um, and help develop content for uh, the, the seminar that was held during the conference every year. And um, it was, um, it was uh, after having worked on that committee for a couple of years that uh, the executive director approached me about uh, running for a, a board position, um, yeah. which I, I did uh, decide to do, and um, and I served on the board of directors for three years. Hmm. Um, so it, um, I I guess you know it, it is it's clearly vol by volunteer. Um, I chose to to volunteer my time, but but was asked to participate and, and was happy to do so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I love the, that mix as well. Um, I'm curious uh, about your practice as it is. Um, how has it evolved over your career? Has it largely been sort of an observation of external um, stimulus or has it been an internal process of evolution? Um, well, in terms of, uh, I guess, specifically with respect to what I what drives me to make the work that I make, um, I, I would say it is somewhat external and, uh, mm. and much, um, much to do with observations that I make or, or questions that I might have that are based on observations that I make about the world or the universe. Um, uh, I tend to, to make pieces that um, are at times my perceived models of uh, how I, I envision the universe, uh, its form, its shape. It's often something that I've seen somewhere that gives me an idea that, you know, balloons into something else. Um, mm. I, I've studied a lot of um, uh, wildflowers that I've observed the Fibonacci sequence in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I jump from there to uh, the the same shapes that are seen in spiral galaxies, and you know it's it's sort of that leap uh, that goes from you know a little simple flower that I might see out on a walk to uh, you know the formation of of galaxies uh, and how that converts into a piece of jewelry. Um, <clears throat> you know that's basically the process in a in a very rough nutshell. Uh, but so it, uh, but, yeah, it's been pretty consistent based on, on, you know, external observations that are then internalized and, uh, and, and then stretched to the nth degree. Mm, mm. Okay, great. And has that sort of been your um, resolve and your process since early on? 
or has it been that adding and adding? Yeah, no, I think I've always had a desire to understand our, our place in the universe. And, um, and I've uh, figured out a way that I'm comfortable with translating that into something visual uh, and something tangible mm. and something wearable. Um, so, uh, so it is something, it's something that I've been sort of stuck with uh, this whole time um, that I've, you know, figured out a way to express. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I'm really interested in how you sort of combine that expression um, with jewelry in the mind and wearability, because a lot of the time I feel like jewelry is sort of deterministic in its forms, you know, like you decide you're going to be making a ring or a brooch or a pendant. Um, I'm curious about your approach to, you know, twisting jewelry into that. Um, okay. So that is um, probably the biggest challenge that a jewelry maker faces finding a way to synthesize your concept, your idea, your, your vision into something that is functional. And, and that's, it is, a, it's a big challenge. And I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's easy to miss the mark and um, you know, a successful piece of jewelry, a contemporary jewelry where, you know, it isn't just about it being a piece of jewelry, but rather uh, a piece of jewelry that's also trying to convey something beyond it just being a piece of jewelry, mm. you know, being able to, to, to successfully synthesize those things together. It, it's, it's a tremendous challenge. So yeah. <clears throat> I don't know whether I succeed all the time or not. Um, but okay. it's, it's, it's my goal. And, and I hope that um, if I am able to, to put that idea onto somebody's body and mm. still have that idea presentable in the same way on or off the body to me i'm happy with that mm, mm. and i think that your work it's it really stands out in my opinion because it really does show that quality and it's something that i appreciate in referencing your work and sort of working towards in my own practice it's really valuable to see well thank you i appreciate that mm. um and so uh on that note, um, I'm really interested in that background um, of the science and the philosophy that you integrate into your practice. Um, could you talk more about like the direct process of converting these conceptual and intellectual concepts into like a visual reference and sort of drawing that out? That's a, that is a, a good question. Um, I'll try to answer that. So, the you know, for me, I, I work I rarely, I rarely draw anything. I, I see things in my head. I even break them down mechanically in my head, you know, part by part. Mm. And, and, and I go from there and I build and oftentimes I'll, you know, sketch out a little part to see if something needs to, to change here or there. But um, at the end of the day, I go from something that I see in my head to, starting to figure out measurements and, um, and, and, uh, and materials and, um, and there are, there are often times where I can't make that jump mm -hmm. and, uh, and the piece does not reach completion. Right. Um, and it's usually early on where I realize that, you know, this isn't going to go the way I want it to go. Um, 
which is good because it saves me a lot of time in the long run. Uh, but it's just, it's the way that I work and, uh, and, and, and perhaps I might be more effective or efficient if I did try to draw things out, but I find that something gets lost when I try to put these things from my head down on paper. And, and, uh, and so it just, it's never worked for me. So, um, so it's often, it's often, uh, something that develops as I go along. Um, and, while the end result might not be exactly what I envisioned in my head, I, I you know, I, I hope that I get it pretty close um, mm. in the finished piece. Um, and so part of, part of that has to do because of, as I mentioned, I, I fabricate everything. I don't, um, I don't, you know, model things uh, on paper or using uh, 3d programs. Mm. Um, and uh, so part of my determination in my studies was to, to try to learn, you know, absolutely everything that I possibly could stomach learning uh, so mm. that when I got back to my own studio, if there was something that I needed to do, you know, there was a good chance I'd be able to figure out how to do that on my own with my own two hands and the equipment that I had in my studio. Um, wow. My ideas about that are starting to change. Uh, <laughs> But, um, but again, you know, uh, I, I tend to, uh, to try to just sort of take that vision and, and put it into material. Um, and, and that's, you know, what you see in terms of the body of work that I've produced since I started posting things out there. Mm. Um, you know, those are, those are just sort of born from my head and into metal. The, the thought that goes into them, the, the, the research, uh, you know, whether it's been uh, something that I've um, made based on an idea I've had about Pythagoras or a particular geometric shape mm. or a particular um, uh, cosmic uh, body, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, that is a whole other discussion on its own. And, you know, I, I think it would be kind of hard to explain, you know, where all of that comes from. But yeah. Uh, I, I hope in some ways I've answered part of your question. Uh. It really does. I, I feel like uh, conceptually it's a pretty strong theme that a lot of the visuals are emergent from your just thinking about these concepts. It makes a lot of sense. But I am shocked to hear that you say that you don't use any 3D modeling or like really planning uh, a lot of your pieces because they're sort of immaculate in their mathematical composition. I will admit, uh, and, and it's not that I was trying to hide it, but I, I forget mm. sometimes that occasionally when I'm laying out a whole pattern for drilling holes, I, I use very rudimentary. I used to work as a, a graphic artist. Mm. Uh, so I use Photoshop and Illustrator and I might lay out uh, a whole pattern in yeah. Illustrator and then print it on a piece of paper and uh, you know, um, apply that to a surface of metal so that I have a guide for a whole pattern or something like that. But, mm -hmm. but beyond some basic two-dimensional uh, you know, whole uh, arrangements or things like that, um, yeah. you know, it's, a pretty, uh, it's a pretty basic, um, you know, I work as a, a classic, as a classic goldsmith and I, I use hammers and uh, I use, um, files and uh, I use stakes and, and, and dapping blocks and, and I work mm. with metal and uh, while I am tempted to, to go down that road with CAD, 
and, and it's something that I have looked into, uh, especially during this lockdown period. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just something that I, I haven't uh, needed so much just yet. Uh, but I have ideas that I think it could be helpful with. So it's something I'm, I'm leaving the door open for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because some of your, your newer work has involved some 3D printed components, the titanium links, which I love the construction of all that. Um, and I also appreciate a, a big divergence or a considered divergence from some archetypal jewelry forms, with the glovelet and the objects in that series. I think those are great. Thank you. Um, yeah, that was a big uh, shift and, um, and it did require CAD. Uh, I had to um, seek some professional help to tweak the model for uh, the little t- titanium components, hmm. uh, which were um, pr- produced by a company through direct metal laser sintering 3D printing. And hmm. um, it is the first time I've used a, a CAD process for any of my projects. Uh, and I was really happy to be able to, because when I started out making those little components, I was actually soldering little tubes together. and. Um, when I calculated that to make the initial first bracelet, I would need 370 of those components, I, I immediately knew that I would be an old man by the time I actually finished the first one, and I had to go a different path. So uh, it, it has served me well, for sure. Okay, great. Wonderful. And, and with that body of work, um, the titanium pieces, there's also a video component. Um, and sort of a lot of paraphernalia around the exhibition. I'm curious if you could talk about that and where it stemmed from in jewelry. There's, of course, the you know my fascination with space. Um, the project, the project stemmed from my frustration with um, the amount of effort, time, and money that is being put into this idea of colonizing Mars. Mm. Um, I know it's not necessarily the uh, the first thing that you'd expect as a driving force behind the project when you just scratch the surface, but but the idea behind the project was to uh, to use this sex robot, which was featured in the video, mm-hmm. as um, a metaphor for Mars being this uh, new relationship we were trying to establish um, with a cold, lifeless, synthetic potential existence. Mm. And, um, and, and in the video, I try to, you know, portray this sort of um, dystopian scenario where, um, you know, uh, humans are relegated to living in these, these cold, lifeless uh, bubbles with, um, with essentially, uh, you know, sex robots to occupy themselves with. Mm. Um, and, uh, and that it's uh, essentially a choice that we're making um, rather than putting that energy, time and focus into saving our own planet, which is a legitimate, uh, healthy and wonderful relationship uh, mm. that we're currently in. A living, um, living thing. So... Um, uh, the the idea did start from one um, little discussion uh, that um, uh, I, I don't remember actually what started it, but uh, but I, I had this idea that uh, these sex robots certainly needed jewelry too, and um, and it just so happened that I was working on some jewelry that seemed pretty damn fitting for a sex robot, and mm-hmm. um, and so I 
continued to sort of develop the idea from there. And I happen to have a very good friend who is in the film industry uh, who liked uh, the idea very much of shooting this video. And um, it took some, some string pulling, but we managed to find a, an astronaut suit and uh, a very talented uh, cinematographer who, mm. who hooked us up with some great equipment. Uh, the whole project actually, the whole project was supported by, by anybody that we put it in front of. And we ended up having the, um, the studio where we shot the video at was, uh, was donated. Um, a film studio uh, uh, sponsored us and, and provide us with the robotic arm camera equipment that was required. Mm. Um, and 17 people volunteered their time to work on this uh, as the, the required crew. Uh, we shot it in 18 hours, a long day, oh. and um, yeah, it was uh, it was certainly uh, the most uh, interesting jewelry project I've mm. I've been involved with yet. Um, mm. Sure, not the last, but it was uh, different. Yeah, yeah, very engaging. I loved it. Um, I was wondering if you could just touch on uh, how the coronavirus has impacted. Uh, uh, your career right now, your work, and then any implications or consequences you think it might have? Well, um, in some ways, I feel um, fortunate in that uh, last year, um, last summer, my wife and I moved from uh, a rural part of uh, Ontario back to the city of Toronto. And mm. unfortunately, we've had some complicating factors that have occurred since then that have caused us to move again. So um, it, it had delayed the process of, of getting my studio up and running. And uh, while construction was underway, uh, the lockdown prevented us from being able to finish it um, uh, throughout the spring. Mm. But I'm, I'm at the moment without studio. And, um, and while on one hand, I, I'm, I'm happy that uh, I've... I've sort of had these two things overlap where um, I haven't necessarily been been concerned all that much about the delay in the studio and, and where we're living necessarily because we've been worried about surviving and, and our families. And mm. um, But at the same time, it's also been very frustrating because uh, I've seen all of my friends and colleagues spend their time uh, incredibly wisely and uh, and productively in their studios yeah. over the past yeah. few months. Um, and uh, not that anybody would wish for something like this, but if there's one thing that, uh, you know, a, an artist or a craftsperson wants, it's to be told to stay in their studio and don't come out. Hmm. So <clears throat> while I'm sure I, I could have done all sorts of stuff had I had a studio um, up and running during this period of time, uh, it's also been um, a period of time where I am shifting gears and um, sort of closing the book on 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 one chapter and opening another. And uh, and in that respect, um, I haven't really minded the little bit of the reset that I've had. So it's been a little while since I've actually worked in the studio. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I now have a battery full of uh, ideas and, and energy and things that I want to get going as soon as I get in there. Yeah. Uh, so um, in the end, uh, I think I fared pretty well through coronavirus. I'm still here and uh, um, 
we're just trying to stay safe and hope that uh, everybody else is staying smart and safe and uh, and that some sort of normalcy can be resumed down the road. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. And on that note of new pages and um, a battery full of ideas, what are some upcoming highlights for your practice? What's what's exciting happening in the future? Well, uh, as um, as most of my colleagues uh, have experienced, uh, a number of events were uh, cancelled or postponed. So it um, it does leave uh, a number of exciting things on the horizon uh, when things do start getting back on track. Um, but I'm starting fresh in a new studio, and uh, and for me that um, you know that presents the opportunity to to really. Uh, uh, try to do some things that maybe before I didn't make the time for or um, didn't want to take the risk to do or whatever it may have been. Uh, I'm going to make myself take the plunge and, uh, and, and you know, try those things that have been uh, on the burner, the side burner for a while. Uh, so I'm, I'm really just, I'm excited to get back to work because uh, it's been, it's been about a year since, uh, since I've finished a, a piece Right. Wow. So for me, that's a long time. You know, I, I, mm. I don't break very often. And <clears throat> if I do travel, it, uh, it tends to be work related. Mm. Um, so, um, so this has been a big, a big pause for me. Uh, so, yeah. so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm amped and ready to go. Excellent. Well, I'm excited to see the outcomes from that. Thank you so much for your time, Ezra. I really appreciate you doing this interview. It was great to talk to you and I'm yeah, really excited. Thank you very much. My pleasure, and I really enjoyed talking with you as well. And uh, I love the chain video, by the way. It's Thank awesome. you. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Very well done. Very well done. It's Ivana Ho here, producer of the Future Self podcast, and I'm here with Jonathan Zalakos, who has just done an incredible job talking to Ezra. Um, Jonathan, why was it that you chose to speak to him? I chose Ezra because uh, he was one of the artists, the jewelry artists whose work I first found and I like something clicked and I was like, okay, this is bigger than what I thought it was, the whole field. Um, and so it was a bit of a Hail Mary to throw his name out there. But yeah, having the opportunity to talk to him was incredibly exciting. And was there anything in particular that he said that you have found the most helpful in pursuing your own jewellery making career? Mm, I, I think his drive to pursue further opportunities in education, like learning a language a year before deciding to go to Italy and, um, you know, do a couple years course there and then end up with an apprenticeship under um, Giovanni, um, I think that's a big takeaway. You know, there's so much effort that you can put into it. Has he inspired you to make that trip to Italy now? <laughs> I'll think about it. Maybe South Korea, you know, somewhere big. Well, all the best with your own jewellery career and thank you for doing this interview for Future Self. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs>